Last week we started a new series based on the old slogan that you used to see on these bracelets, WWJD, which stood for What Would Jesus Do? Except we're doing the series, What Would Jesus Undo? What were the things in Jesus' life that broke his heart and made him cry? What were the things in Jesus' ministry that made him mad and that he just could not stand, that he had to do something about? We started last week with the subject of spiritual indifference. We called it lukewarm. And basically, you know, Jesus left heaven for us. He died on the cross and rose again the third day for us. He answers our prayers and supplies our needs. He gave us a mission of eternal significance, go into all the world and take the gospel to everyone. And yet we tend to put him on the shelf most of the time to put everything else ahead of him and call on him only when we really get in trouble. You know, I, no other way I'll, I'll call on God now. Today, we're going to talk about worship. Uh, the subject is lip service or empty worship. I kind of like that phrase, lip service, by the way. I once used it in a paper in a history class 100 years ago when I was in, in college. And uh, the other scholars in the class kind of raised their eyebrows at it, but got a, got a smirk out of the professor and a good grade. So I fear it must be a pretty good phrase uh, to use. We're going to get the origin of that phrase in a minute, but it's about people who talk a good game, but do little or nothing to back up their talk. The first use of the word worship in the Bible was when Abraham was following God's commandment to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac, to God. Uh, I think it comes under the principle of first mention. You know, the first time something is mentioned in scripture, there's usually a significance to it. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 5 says, uh, so they were going to sacrifice his son, and Abraham said to his young men, the guys who went with him, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder. That's a southern term. Yeah, we're going to go over there and worship. We're going to go on up the mountain and worship, and we will come back to you. They were going to worship. What was involved in that worship? Well, as far as he knew, and he wasn't sure, he was going to build an altar, strap his son to that altar, put a knife through his son's heart, and then burn him on that altar. Now, God did not allow that to happen. All God wanted was for Abraham to give his son to him, which he did, and then God provided a substitute, because God doesn't, isn't for a human sacrifice, of course. But Abraham was ready to do whatever it took. The primary words for worship in the Hebrew language, and there's more than one word used, translated uh, in the Old Testament, but the primary words all mean to bow down before in homage, in respect, in honor, in reverence. And while not used specifically for singing, of course we usually connect worship and singing, while these words are not always connected with singing, they're often used in song. For instance, 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 29, scripture says this, give to the Lord the glory do his name. Bring an offering and come to him, O worship the Lord. And, and here's a significant phrase, in the beauty of holiness. We'll talk about holiness a little bit later on. Psalm 29 and verse 2 is a song. It says, give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So the exact same words. In Psalm 66, beginning in verse 1, this is a psalm, by the way, that 
that uh, it's, called, it's entitled to the chief musician, a song, a psalm. Make a joyful shout to God all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Verse three, say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. And verse four, all the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. And that word selah, nobody knows what it means. It may mean rest or have some other musical significance. In the New Testament, which is written in Greek, the Greek word translated worship also means to bow down in reverence. But it carries a little extra meaning. It also means to kiss the hand, you know, kind of you kiss the hand of person that you are showing obeisance to. First use of the word worship in the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Worship is about God. And as soon as God appeared on the scene, how are we going to worship him? The last use of the word worship in scripture is in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. The book of the Revelation is a special revelation given by Jesus Christ himself to John, the apostle John. And near the end of that book, John is tempted to worship an angel who is God's messenger. And the angel says to him, don't worship me. I'm a created person. I'm a created being like you are. Don't worship me. I'm just a servant of God like you are. He says this in Revelation 22.9, worship God. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, worship only God. Don't worship anyone or anything other than the very God of heaven. So worship is important. It is one of the reasons we exist personally and one of the reasons we exist as a church is to worship God. And empty worship, since worship is so significant, empty worship or worthless worship or lip service is one of the things that Jesus would undo. It's one of the things that he just absolutely could not tolerate. There's a whole lot of sins. Jesus just loved people uh, and, and, and tolerated them and forgave them and pointed them in the right direction. But this is one that he just could not stand. Let's read an account of one such event in his life. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 1. Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem, came to Jesus saying, the scribes uh, were people who copied down the law. The Pharisees were the leading sect of the Jews. And they were in Jerusalem. They left Jerusalem and came to where Jesus was in Galilee. They had heard about him, uh, heard the things that he was doing. And there was something about what was going on in this rabbi's life, in Jesus's life that disturbed these leaders. So they made the trip from Jerusalem to Galilee to tell him what that was. And here it is in verse two. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands before they eat, eat their bread, eat their lunch. They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now under the law of Moses, God had declared certain things to be clean and unclean. You're probably familiar with that. It was an illustration of their holiness or their separation to the Lord. Among clean animals, for instance, animals they could touch or eat were sheep and goats and fish with scales. Can you think of an unclean animal? 
A pig. I, I, I figured it'd be the one you'd think about. Everybody thinks about a pig, right? I have to tell you a story. Uh, most of you know that our son Brad lives in the Memphis area, and for a while he, lived, he worked for a national company that sold office supplies. And uh, for a good last 10 or 15, 12 years or something like that, he was a district sales manager, and he had a team that worked under him. And even though he doesn't have that job anymore, that team is still close, and they had lunch together this last week. And one of the members of his team is a Jewish lady. She's a practicing Jewish lady. She, she believes in her faith. And they had a tragedy in their family that she was just talking to the group about. They have a son. His name is Jonah, a very Jewish name. Uh, and he had been out with his Christian friends. And they got him in trouble. And he went, came to confess to his family what he had done. He was humiliated. And he was shamed by it all. And he said, Mom and Dad, I have to tell you, I ate bacon. Now, we, we, that's our reaction, right? What? You know, if your kid comes home and tells you that, you're thinking, is that it? You know, there's nothing to that. I thought it was something really bad. But, but to this Jewish lady, it was serious. See, it was a violation of the command of God. And so it was a very serious thing. Uh, but that's not what the Jewish leaders were talking about here. They weren't talking about, you're violating the command that God wrote in the Old Testament. They were upset uh, because Jesus' disciples were violating the traditions of the elders who said, you have to wash your hands in a certain way before you eat. Now, your mother probably insisted that you wash your hands before meal. And if you are a mother, you probably insist that your children wash their hands before a meal. There were probably times when you uh, came to the dinner table and mom said, did you wash your hands? Go wash your hands. When you came back out, did you use soap? How, could, how did mom know that? Well, there was that, that dirt draining down your arm in the water, you know, because you didn't use, so you went in and you used soap. But that kind, that's not the kind of clean the elders were concerned about. Over the years, the rabbis had added hand washing before meals to the commandments. And the cleansing was not physical, but ceremonial. Included a special way to let the water drain off of your hands and the washing of your cup and your pitcher and all sorts of things. And there were rabbis that considered it a capital offense if you did not, uh, they, they believed you should die if you did not engage in this ceremonial washing. Sounds like some of the things that we Christians add to scripture sometimes. But that was the accusation against Jesus. The elders have these traditions and you are not keeping the traditions of the elders. Here was Jesus' answer, verse three. He answered them and said, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? So he goes right on the offensive and he accuses them not just of violating a tradition, but violating one of the main commandments, one of the 10 commandments, commandment number five, which is honor your father and mother, verse four. For God commanded saying, honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift of God. And I'm gonna just stop there for a minute and say, under the law of Moses, children were obligated to take care of their parents. But the Jewish leaders had found a loophole in that where they could let their parents be destitute and live in luxury 
uh, themselves. What would happen is that whatever they were supposed to use for their parents, they could declare this is a gift to God. And therefore, I've given this to God. I can't give it to my parents. It sounded so spiritual. And yet it was absolutely selfish and self-serving. And whatever it was that they declared they were giving to God, uh, well, God didn't get it right then. They kept it for the rest of their lives, you know, in their house. And then it would go, supposed to go to God later. And so Jesus looked at them and he said in verse 6, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the command of God of no effect by your tradition. You, uh, you are acting so spiritual, but there's nothing to you. You actually are only about yourself. So he called them hypocrites. Verse uh, 7, hypocrites. By the way, the word hypocrite originally referred to an actor uh, who was on a stage who pretended to be someone he was not. And then eventually, it just came to mean pretender, phony, one who professes beliefs and opinions that he or she does not hold in order to conceal his or her real feelings or motives. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you. Isaiah painted a perfect picture, and you fit into the picture when he said this, verse 8. These people draw near to me with their mouth, that is, they talk a good game, and honor me with their lips, lip service. They say a lot, a lot of stuff, but their heart is far from me. Worship is not about words that are on the lips. Worship is about the condition of the heart. Talk is cheap. Lip service is no service at all. Verse 9, and in vain they worship me. It's not really worship. It's empty. It's worthless. Worship It's lip service. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. How we love, even we, to major on our own rules and forget about God. Let me give you two, I'm going to give you two things, two characteristics of worship this morning, a positive and a negative, beginning with the negative. Worship is not about style. You know, worship, worship is not about the, the ritual that you go through. In the latter 70s, <clears throat> I was faculty advisor for a traveling college ensemble from Florida Baptist College in Lakeland. That meant that on weekends, I often accompanied the group when they would go sing in churches representing the college. Sometimes I would preach, sometimes I wouldn't. But one Sunday night, we're headed home, this close-knit group. We've been serving God all day, and we're kind of tired, you know. And an argument broke out in the group. Uh, and the argument was did, uh, uh, about country gospel music versus traditional gospel music, which came first and which, you know, which uh, was responsible for the other one. And it got kind of heated because we'd been serving Jesus all day, you know. So they were really going at it. If I hadn't put an end to it, I know who would have won, by the way. Country was going to win because the, the prime advocate for country was six foot eight and he was an outdoorsman from out west. And the primary advocate for traditional was a, a smallish guy from Miami. And so I know who was going to win. I had, just to shut it, I had to shut it down as faculty uh, advisor. The fact is, it's the condition of the heart and not the style of the music that uplifts God. When you say from your heart, God, I love you. I commit myself to you. I plan to serve you with all my being. He hears you. It doesn't make any difference how you say it, what style you have. It's, 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 it's what the message is. On my desk here, in a drawer at home, on my desk at home, I have some ugly containers. 
Uh, one of them is made out of a coffee can, and it's wrapped with this, I don't know what cover, velvet stuff with some string around it. And the other is a baby food jar with some clothespins around it. I keep those things. You know why? Because my boys made them in vacation Bible school when they were little. And they gave them to me. And it says, I love you, Dad. And I have scraps of paper and cards and drawings and all kinds of stuff. And why do I keep those things stuffed in different places besides the fact that I'm a hoarder? Uh, it's because it says, I love you, Dad. I love you, Granddad. That's why I keep them. And I don't care if you think they're ugly or not. It doesn't matter to me what you think about them. It doesn't matter what the style of them was. The important thing is that I have these people that love me and they were expressing their love to me. Worship is not about the style or the polish. It's not about, now we should do the best we can, right? And, and, and we do a great job, by the way. Uh, but it's not about the, the style, although we should do our best, it's about the condition of the heart. We need to keep that in mind. Here's what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. He said in John 4, 24, God is spirit. In, by his very nature, God is spirit. And those who worship, who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's got to come from the heart. It's got to be real. And it's got to be truth. Scriptures tell us different ways that people express worship. I'm going to give you two or three of these from the ones most frequently used to the ones least frequently used. But uh, first thing is this. Sometimes we bow in reverence. You know, sometimes we worship, it's, it's quiet. We bow in reverence. Psalm 9, 95 verse 6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Worship, bow down, kneel. Three words, different words with similar meanings that express those who just humbly and totally give themselves to God. Sometimes we get a good look at who God is and what God has done for us, and we just, we just can't even say anything. We just have to kneel uh, in his presence in an act of submission. Sometimes, number two, we lift our hands in adoration to God. Psalm 63 was written by King David in the wilderness of Judea, probably when, if you remember the story, his son Absalom was on the attack, drove him out of town. So he's probably on the run, fleeing from Absalom. Psalm 63, verses 3 and 4 say this, because, of, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Now, I don't lift up my hands too much, uh, kind of not in my nature, uh, and, and I, I, feel like if, I feel like if I lift my hand, I'm copying somebody, but I know that when Allie does it, it's real, and I know when Gene does it, it's real, and I know when Cassie does it, it's real, and I know when you do it, it's real, and, and lifting up our hands is something that's commanded in Scripture. Uh, I know when Kate lifts her hand when, when she's uh, uh, leading worship up here, I know that it's it's real. 1 Timothy 2.8. Paul said to Timothy, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. 
You know, in our culture, we tend to raise our hands for two reasons. Number one is surrender. You know, I don't have a gun on me. You know, my hands, my hands are up. So it's surrender. And the second one is victory. What's, what is the signal for a touchdown in football? Both hands in the air, right? Touchdown. So uh, in our culture, it's either surrender or victory when we raise our hands uh, in the air. And if you think about it, when we surrender to God, it's also victory. We get both things at the same time, surrender and victory, when we go to him. Number three, sometimes we dance in celebration. Now, I'm not talking about ballroom dancing for Dave and Kathy. I'm not talking about square dancing or line dancing or, or any kind of couples dancing. Uh, of the different words translated dance in connection with worship, the words mean chorus, leap, twirl. Some even think they may refer to a musical instrument. But Psalm 149 says this, let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful. What's connected with joy? Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. When King David got himself in trouble with his wife, but she was probably wrong in this instance, when King David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant of God into the city of Jerusalem, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 13 says, And so it was when those bearing the Ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fattened sheep. Must have taken them a long time, right? Every six paces, they stopped and they offered sacrifices. Six more steps, they stopped. They offered sacrifice as they're entering the city of Jerusalem. Verse 14 says, Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod, kind of a priestly thing. There's no hint in Scripture of couples dancing. There's always separation, you know. Uh, I think of, by the way, I think of dancing before the Lord. I'm not saying I'm right this way I think about it. Uh, something like I witnessed in a service one time, and, and I grew up in a very kind of austere background, but uh, they were raising money to build a building for Bible college. And uh, the guy that was leading in the fundraising was a guy by the name of Dr. Albert Garner, somebody would he was a very austere, uh, brainy gentleman, you know. And so they keep, I'll give this much, I'll give that much, I pledge this much. And when the last pledge was made that met the goal, Dr. Garner jumped up out of his seat straight into the air, clicked his heels together. How he could do that at his age, I do not know. But he leaped in the air, clicked his heel together and shouted in praise to God. Well, I think he was dancing before the Lord when he did that, don't you? We tend to do that kind of thing. I think it, for us in our culture, we think more like jumping for joy when our team wins. I don't know why we can do that when the team scores or the team wins, but we, we don't do it for God. Amen. Right? In all forms of worship, we must be sure that it's in spirit and in truth. Scripture, by the way, also talks about hand clapping, lying face down on the ground before God, and heads bowed, uh, lots of other things. I just gave three. The three that come up, uh, well, the first two most often, the last one not as much. But worship is not about style. Uh, worship is about spirit and truth, and which brings us to the second thing. Worship 
is about the condition of your heart. And if it's not, your heart's not right, it's not worship. And if your heart is right, it is worship. Uh, worship and holiness. I'm going to talk about holiness, just not a lot, but a little bit here. Worship and holiness are not primarily about keeping rules, although there are rules. And Adam and Eve broke them, and that's the reason we're in trouble today, by the way. So there are rules. But worship and holiness are not primarily about keeping rules, but about being like God and always putting him first. In both the Old and the New Testament, God said, be holy because I'm holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, Peter wrote this, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Verse 15, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. So holiness is something you do as well. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. In an absolute sense, only God is holy. Only God is good. The rest of us are something else, right? Only God is absolute in his majesty and in his separation from sin and from the sinful creation. But because you and I have this special privilege, we're created in the image of God. And because we're born a second time into the family of God, and because the Holy Spirit lives within us and empowers us, God calls on us to be holy in a practical way. Be, he calls us on us to imitate him, to be like him. He calls on us to practice being like him in, in our life and conduct as we live out what's already on the inside of us. We're called saints in Scripture or holy people in Scripture or people separated to God in Scripture. And so we should be continually becoming like Christ. That's what worship it should be about. It should be about people who are becoming like Christ, uplifting his name. I think we can see that in a couple of uses of the word sacrifice. Last couple of thoughts for the morning. The first uh, sacrifice phrase is found in Hebrews 13, where, he, where the writer of Hebrews said this in verse 15, let, therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. Don't you like that? The sac offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But, verse 16, do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Now, quite frankly, the first time I thought about this phrase, the sacrifice of, pra sacrifice of praise, I thought, what's so hard about that? What's so hard about saying praise God? Where's the sacrifice? And just saying some stuff. What are we talking about here? Well, the idea is this, that we say, praise God. God is above all. God's awesome in his power. Let his name be lifted up. He alone is worthy. And we say it from the heart in commitment to honor that in the way that we live. Praise God. That's the way I live my life, praising God. God is above all. I am below him. I put him before everything else. Let his name be lifted up. That's what my life is about, lifting up the name of God, committing to honor him. The right kind of praise leads us to do what that second verse says. It leads us to do good and to share with others. In other words, if I'm praising God from the heart, it's not about me. My life is not about me. My life is about him. 
And my life is about you, not about God. This is borne out in the second phrase, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, I encourage you, I implore you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, think about what God has done for you. Think about what you deserved and what he's done. God's mercy, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is what worship is all about. It's all about giving yourself to God on a daily basis. As we daily offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, we worship him. Jesus put it like this. Luke 9, 23. Then Jesus said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, to follow me, let him deny himself, put yourself second, and take up his cross daily and follow me. Worship. It's all about the condition of the heart. I love to sing. I love to hear you sing. Uh, I love to stand beside Jean and have her raise her hand in praise as she's singing. Have Cassie there. Uh, have Caitlin singing with me on the front row. I love all that, and I love to hear the words coming from behind me and the words coming from the platform. But I know that real worship is the condition of the heart. So I close today with, number one, the, first re the, the same recommendation I made to you last week. Every day, this week, every day, do something that requires faith. Every day, instead of thinking about all the rules, every day just get up and say, God, what can I do today that would require faith? Now, I did that myself. You know, I don't ask you to do anything I don't do. I did that myself every day last week, and it went pretty good until Thursday. And then I came face to face with something on Thursday that challenged me. I don't tell you what it is, but challenged me. And I said, it made me mad. And I said, this, I, this is impossible. This can't be done. I won't do it. Can't be done. And, and it took me a while, but then I began to think, well, isn't what that faith is all about? This is impossible. This cannot, this can't work out. There's no way in the world this can work out. And so then I had to go to God and apologize and say, well, I asked you to give me something that I, so I could live by faith today, and you did, and I got mad about it. Second thing, last thing I'm going to leave you with is this. Worship God each morning when you get up and each evening when you go to bed. So you get up in the morning and say, God, give me something that I can do by faith today, not just, you know, stuff I know I can handle anyway. And worship God in your thoughts, in your words, in the morning when you get up and at night when you go to bed. And remember that worship is not so much about whether you raise your hands or you don't raise your hand or what you do. It's about the condition of the heart. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us and being here in this service this morning. Use us as you see fit. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me and uh, help me to see that only you can help us live by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.